Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, where an expert and a noob boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Kev Gozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? Let's see. I saw a vision of myself seven years of the future. I believe we're in the middle of doing season four of Next Generation. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a future that I'm not going to try to avoid unless, uh, well, we'll see how we feel at the end of the original series. But yes, hi. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing absolutely fine. Thank you. Um, Yeah, this week uh, we are going to be diving into the world of Strange New Worlds. So we're going to put the original series on hold for an episode and we are going to move forward in time to uh, the start date of 20. 2021 and uh, we're going to go over uh, Strange New World's first season but as always on this podcast we are not doing it alone and we have a wonderful guest with us so say hello Ellie. Hello hi thank you so much for having me I'm very excited to talk Trek one of my favorite things. Well it's it's wonderful to have you on the show thank you very much for joining us Uh, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great I uh I got to spend Part of yesterday, watching one of my favorite Star Trek episodes uh, to prepare for this. Um, and it was a delight. I can't wait to talk about it. I won't say, I won't spoil what episode it is. But anytime I get to rewatch it and then talk about it with people, it's immediately the highlight of my week. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, if we've given you the highlight of your week, then that's, that's already the podcast off to a fantastic start. Uh, so normally what we do at this point is uh, we will um, ask you about your history with the show and then normally I would give uh, over to Kev uh, in order to have our little plot summary. Now we don't have a plot summary but we do have um, a slightly different format for the episode but we will start at least with uh, with You Good Self Ellie. So um, what's your history with Star Trek? How, how did you come to the show? All right. Well, I've I've always been a bit of a nerd but I think with Star Trek I am a little bit of a a fake nerd because my first real involvement with it was with the 2009 uh, J.J. Abrams movie, which probably isn't like a very cool uh, thing to say about how you got into Star Trek, but I'd always been aware of it before that. I'd seen the reruns on TV. Um, I'm also a big uh, I Love Lucy fan, so I knew all about Lucille Ball's involvement in getting Star Trek off the ground. I thought that was really cool, but I had never really... Uh, watched it and really thought about it in any way up until the 2009 movie, which I immediately loved. I thought it was so fun. I wanted to know everything about Star Trek after that. Um, I blew through the original series really quickly after that, and then I got really into Next Generation, which ended up actually being probably my favorite of the Star Treks, Um, even though original series is the one that I first saw uh, Next Generation, those are my boys. Um, I love them so much. Seen every episode like a billion times because uh, they used to just rerun it constantly on BBC America every day. It was one of the shows that they would, for some reason, play like four or five episodes back to back. And I would just have them on in the background while I was doing things at home. And I feel like it all just absorbed into my brain. Um, so yeah, that's that's my history with it. Uh, fake fan <laughs> since two thousand nine, but um, yeah, just a just a huge fan since then. Got my boys. Can't wait to talk about them. Uh, yeah, that's me. 
Fantastic. Thank you very much. I, I've got to say, um, a slight sidebar here. This, mm-hmm. You're not the first person on this podcast to say, oh, I came to Star Trek mm-hmm. uh, from the 2009 movie. Not least of which, <coughs> Kev. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah. Uh, so I just want to say, like, like yeah. if you've come to Star however you've come to Star mm-hmm. Trek, I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there's such... There's such a thing about gatekeeping at mm-hmm. the moment, especially like at the time that we were recording this. It's not long after uh, the whole Stranger Things and mm-hmm. Kate Bush um, and her popularity oh, yeah. has sort of kicked <laughs> off. And like, there are so many fans who are like gatekeeping and say, "Oh, well, you can't be a real Kate Bush fan because you came to it through Stranger mm-hmm. Things." So like, no, if you like the music, you like the music, yeah. and that's an end to it. If you like Star Trek, you like Star mm-hmm. Trek. It doesn't matter whether you came from TOS, TNG, mm-hmm. DS9, Voyager, whatever it is, the movies. It's all good. It's all it's all good. So uh, yeah, just, no 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 fanboy gatekeeping here. It just pains me to have to say something so nice about J.J. Abrams because otherwise I'm I'm always so harsh on him. He's done so many other things that make me angry, but the fact that he got me into one of my favorite fandoms, like I gotta give it up to him. You know, he had all of those comments right before that movie came out where he was like, "I never understood Star Trek. It was always." too intelligent and like i wanted to make it fun again i was like this guy's an idiot but like you know what (laughs) it worked he did make it fun Mm -hmm. and he got a a different generation of people involved with it who maybe never would have watched the original series so i I gotta give him props even though he went about it in a a very stupid way (laughs) i think but my flip side is I also got into, I was mm-hmm. mentioned through the 2009 movie, but then it's mm-hmm. just, I just lacked the follow through. I was like, I just got into <laughs> Doctor Who like a couple years ago and that's taken over my life. <laughs> this is too much. Let me wait for Doctor Who mm-hmm. to get very sporadic <laughs> and bad. <laughs> and then I can invest in this podcast. Well, don't worry, Kev. We're correcting that even as we speak. So uh, I know. Yeah, uh, it's 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 good to have uh, it's good to have a new generation of fans uh, sort of come through, and um, you know, uh, meet up with us uh, old timers such as such as my good self. Um, but yeah, uh, Kev, uh, perhaps you'd like to tell people what we're actually going to do this episode. All right. So instead of just like running through ten episodes of television and give, not giving all of them the um attention they deserve or giving some of them maybe too much attention than they deserve um we're just going to instead format it this way we're going to talk characters we enjoy from the show overall first and then we're going to highlight four specific episodes from the show that we really wanted to give a thumbnail discussion of so first we're going to do a group discussion oh there's all group discussions but we're going to talk about captain pike who sort of gets in there by default And then we're each going to bring our own characters to the table who we want to discuss and their overall role in the show and why we love them. And then we're going to go into four specific episodes. Again, one episode that each of us chose. And we're finally going to end with a discussion of Equality of Mercy, the season finale. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, um, yeah, let's let's kick off there and let's kick off with Captain Pike. Ellie, you're our guest this week. So um, why don't you kick us off and and, uh, what do you think of Captain Pike? I thought Captain Pike in this show was great. I really uh, enjoyed um, what I've been calling the zaddyfication of Captain Pike. Um, I I like that they just leaned into him, to him being like a hot guy who's got all of these different women throughout the galaxy. Like, we don't have Kirk in this show up until the very end. We need somebody to be the hot one <laughs> in this show. <laughs> they were like, that's what Pike is here for. Uh his his entire plot line with you know the the time crystal and things which we'll get into when we're talking about the episodes i assume 
not the most exciting plot for me. Like, I I don't know. I spent a lot of the show just being like, why doesn't he just retire yeah. and, like, avoid it? Like, I don't know. I had, I had some, like, plot holes with that. But, I mean, the performance was great. He had a great energy. You could tell that he was, like, a father figure to so many of the characters. Like, I, I think they just did a great job making him feel like he was part of the family. And also, I, I love that cooking is his thing. He's cooking in every episode. I thought that was such a fun thing to just let him have his hobby and make that a part of the story so often. You get to see them just kicking back, hanging out with Pike, being casual. It was a nice vibe. <laughs> I, I think nice vibe is the perfect description for both Anson Mount's performance and the show as a whole. It's just, it's such like a gentle and fun show. And he's such like a gentle and fun captain. Like he's not, he doesn't have many hard edges, which I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe he's a little too soft. Like he's not, but we kind of need the external conflict of the doom that's foretold for him to generate some interest at times. But he's, it's just so fun to like have a scene with him. I think Mount is really good. I, there was a post from a friend of mine really recently talking about how like the classic Star Trek captains, like they work because they all have a theatrical quality to them. I mean, of course, Shatner and Stuart, this is very obvious. I was citing like Avery Brooks and Kate Mulgrew. I mean, I know Kate Mulgrew is an actor more than Brooks, but I don't know them as captains as any at all, obviously. But that's the sort of common thread between those four. And I think Mount is the closest thing we have in modern Trek to that same theatrical quality because everyone discovery is so restrained. Everyone on lower decks is like kind of undercutting those vibes by design. So I just, it's just nice to have a straight down the middle captain that has presence. Yeah. I think that's the thing that Anson Mount really has. He has uh, such an ability to sort of fill the screen um, and he does it very kind of naturalistically. Um, he definitely does have that sort of slightly theatrical side to him. Um, Kev, you're quite right in that. And and he's absolutely everybody's space daddy. So, <laughs> you know, Ellie, you're quite right in that too. Uh, but it's kind of, it's kind of an appealing um, vibe and it's, it's, it's a nice approach to a captain that I don't really think that Star Trek has quite done before. There's um, that sense of authority. I mean, that's what every captain kind of has to try and uh, sort of resonate. But the only other captain that we've had who's really had a significant kind of, um, or who's been significantly older, let's say, has been um, Patrick Stewart. But Patrick Stewart isn't he's quite stentorian you know he's he's very authoritative of course but he's got that slightly stentorian you know authority to him he's not space daddy and that's one of the things that makes um anson mount's performance so appealing he's incredibly sort of warm and approachable and somebody that you could really imagine just hanging out whilst he's you know making reheated spaghetti or whatever it is you know it's a it's a nice vibe and yet it doesn't the fact that he's um, a, a sort of older gentleman and he's kind of approachable, in, not only does it not undercut his authority, it's where his authority comes from. And I think that's one of the great things about Anson Mount's performance is that he's able to use those aspects of the character to project his authority in the same way that, say, Patrick Stewart has this kind of very commanding sort of presence or the way Shatner has kind of a, a, a sort of wily charm about him or whatever. Those are, those are the aspects of 
that character that make them work and that's the aspect of of pike which works it's incredibly effective and a really fantastic choice for him yeah agreed and i think if i oh, oh also the hair yes. oh, also yeah. The hair. oh yeah and the the beard uh in the first episode he looks incredible <laughs> he, they should have let him keep it for a little while it was a good look but i think of all the star trek captains if i had to choose one to be my boss you know and to actually serve under on one of these ships i think i would pick this version of pike he just seems like a perfect boss whereas like kirk i don't know obviously he's the the classic star trek captain and like he's a fun guy but i just feel like serving under him would be such a pain in the ass it just seems like (laughs) there's there's too many shenanigans going on whereas i feel like this pike would take care of me when we get into trouble you know i feel like he's always got a plan and he's good at communicating it whereas kirk is just like living for the chaos and the drama i feel like he's going to come up with a plan but like he would always just be so anxious about (laughs) about what he's doing or if he's gonna pull it off i you know that's that's too much stress for me but this pike i think even when you're in a very dangerous situation staring down the barrel of the gun at death i would be like i'll follow you anywhere daddy pike i i know you've got me (laughs) yeah it's I mean, I think it is the dinner scenes that really bring him home. It's he's such a good like match with each of the crew members. I also like how they do have him connect with each member of his crew. Like he's always like there to offer advice or talk directly to them in some way. Um, that you need that presence in sort of your center point of your show, where he can be sort of the filter for everything and relate to all these characters and because like he's a character that instantly grabs you thanks to performance when like he is affectionate to these characters it sort of rubs off on you (laughs) to be affectionate towards them as well it's just yeah i mean you need a strong center of the show and i think they really found a great one in mount and in this vert this writing of pike as well i yeah i wouldn't imagine any other way i just yeah especially for a show as sort of as light and fizzy as this one I think having that strong center really grounds the whole thing. Well, and because so many of the crew are these kind of fairly um, different characters, it's it's important that you have that kind of central figure to kind of anchor them. And particularly the early sort of few episodes that we get, it, it kind of, it doesn't last, but it starts out looking like uh, more or less every character is going to have their episodes so you have a spock episode or you have an uhura episode or you have a a mabenga episode or whatever it doesn't quite plan out that after sort of maybe the first quarter or third of the season but all these kind of very different characters um very uh different temperaments very different ways of reacting having that sort of central still point in a character like Anson Mount but still with that kind of charisma that kind of confidence that he's able to project means that you can understand very easily why such a a wide variety of characters would be prepared to follow him why he's an effective captain for for precisely that reason uh you know whether it's the sort of kind of cold emotionlessness of Spock or the you know uh La Nunian Singh is kind of like pretty much the the polar opposite of that you have you know Uhura's uncertainty and and the sourness of hammer and all this all these different sort of um all these different characters kind of in orbit around him and yet they find a way to relate 
some aspect of Pike to each one of those mm-hmm. characters. Uh, and yeah, from that, you're able to see, oh yeah, actually, it makes perfect sense that he's the guy that's, that's sitting in the center chair. Uh, yeah, I couldn't have said better myself. Like, yeah, that's everything of what makes Pike good. Um, I think we should now move into our sort of specific characters we wanted to highlight and how they sort of threaded through the show. And Ellie, as our guest, why don't we start again with you? Yeah, great. So I, the main reason I wanted to watch this show, I guess, aside from just hearing wonderful things about it and hearing that it was like one of the most high quality Star Trek projects in years, is because I wanted to see a new young version of my boy Spock, one of my favorite characters of all time. I love him so much. Um, And this show gave me everything I wanted. Like, Ethan Peck is doing an incredible job of making you forget that you are watching a different version of this character. Not to say he is doing an imitation of Leonard Nimoy, because he's absolutely not. He's bringing his own spin to it. He is bringing, like, this weird, like, more youthful kind of, like, unhinged almost energy, like, just under the surface, which I think is right for Spock because at this point he is like still learning to control his emotions and he's very confused about who he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to do with these emotions that keep coming up but like the performance is just so confident in the fact that it is going to naturally be different from Leonard Nimoy and I think that that's what got me so on board with it right away where I was like okay He knows he can't just do an imitation. He knows that he has to get as close as possible to the original thing, but play around with it and, you know, make it his own. And he did that in a way that I think surpasses Zachary Quinto in the J.J. Abrams films. And I was a big fan of Zachary Quinto in those. I thought he was good, but, like, even Peck, I think, took it so much further. I think he, like, captured the real energy of Spock as he would be when he was younger, more than Zachary Quinto did. I feel like Zachary Quinto leaned more into just the, like, the raw anger of Spock at that time, which was, it's fun to see, and that's a different way to take it, but I think that that Ethan Peck was really good at playing that anger under the surface and, like, more restrained, whereas Zachary Quinto kind of lets it bubble up a little bit more. Yeah, I fully agree with all of that. I think, like, Peck is definitely the best Spock we've had since Nemo. I mean, he's, like, it's such a fascinating take on the character for all the reasons you said. Um, and I think we also just have to talk about, this is almost going to be a combo character discussion, we have to talk about the will-they-won't-they they, that they've str- already just doubled down on so hard between him and Chapel, which is just such a good, like, innovation of what you can do and what's What's a prequel? I mean, it's like the trickiest thing to do when you know how things are going to end. And that's like such a looming, it's a very obvious looming specter with Pike of, and this is how it ends for you. But when doing a prequel show, you also have to contend with the fact that, yeah, we know Spock and Chapel. And when you get to the naked time seven years later for them, she'll still be pining after him and he'll still be like unavailable. And yet, even knowing that it's not going anywhere the tension between them is so good it's so good i think these two are playing the will they won't they energy better than anyone we've seen on tv in years like kevin i watched the the episode where you think 
maybe they're gonna kiss we watched it together and we were both like screaming on the couch just being like come on just give us give us the one kiss just let them kiss i was so excited that they decided to actually lean into this energy for the two of them just let them have their little flirtations and i was like trying to think throughout the show is there anything in the canon of the original series that like is a hard line for them to not have been able to hook up at this point i don't think there is we'll get more into my thoughts on uh, a muck time which is going to come up in my episode discussion but i rewatched it yesterday because i wanted to have it fresh in my mind and you know what i think if they had hooked up at this time and they were exes uh, that episode plays a lot better. There's a weird vibe between them throughout that episode. She's clearly still pining for him. But, like, it's never fully explained what his relationship is to her in the original series, as far as I can remember. It kind of just plays as, like, she has this insane... Like, she's down horrendous, as the kids say, for Spock. She has such a big crush on him, and he's just kind of, like he's just letting it happen you know like he's just being polite about it but they're like she's watching him you know and he's sick in a muck time she doesn't know what's wrong with him and she's crying and then there's this scene where he like asks her to bring him soup and i was like this would be such a romantic scene if if this show actually does just lean into it and let them hook up and have a relationship and now they're exes in the original series so I love that maybe we're going to get a retcon uh, or at least filling in the gaps of what's going on with those two. And I also didn't expect to be this invested in a Spock relationship because I'm I'm ready to go all in on Spock Kirk if uh, if they end up having a flirtatious vibe, which I also think the show should lean into. The fans have been waiting for that for so long, you know? The fans have been waiting for that since <laughs> this show first aired in the 60s. Give us a little something. Let them let them kiss just like once. Come on. Don't we deserve it? I, I just want to see what happens. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I mean, that's a lovely thought. <laughs> very much, uh, very much get the impression that uh, that they're probably not going to bring slash in canon. Um, but it would be, cowards. it would be absolutely delightful. Yeah, absolutely. You cowards, it would light go a on, fire give it a kiss through the through the fandom. Like lines would be drawn. It really would. Like you want publicity for your show? Do yeah. this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but no, I mean, like I, I completely agree. I mean, of course, uh, Ethan Peck is 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 phenomenal as as Spock, and I think he does do just such a good job of that kind of that slightly earlier, slightly more immature version of Spock. Um, all that stuff, Ellie, that you were saying about um, the relationship between uh, Spock and Chapel, and you know, as far as the original is concerned, it's it's just straightforward, unrequited love. Um, she pines after him. He's he's kind of aloof and unavailable, and it's exactly the same kind of um, what's the right what's the right word archetype. Maybe that's the one to go for that you have. You know, like people who are kind of incredibly attracted to like Sherlock Holmes or or Dracula or whatever. It's that you know, it's the unattainable. That's 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 the power of the attraction, and that's that's very much what the Spock Chapel um, relationship, if if indeed it really even is a relationship in the original series is the way that it's expanded on here 
I think is is phenomenal simply because like like you mentioned it kind of adds more depth to rewatching parts of the classic series without ever really just being like a retcon or or like rewriting continuity whatever it just it sheds a different uh angle on it it's a different perspective if you've seen that angle and you like it that's fine but like if you have i think um i i can't speak to this because i've watched star trek since since i was very very young but um i'm gonna go ahead and guess like if you're not that familiar with the original show i think the relationship between spock and chapel functions absolutely fine just within the context of the guidelines of of uh, strange new worlds but if you have like the additional knowledge about how you know you know that in the future like 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 you said kev like seven years from now we'll have the naked time that episode chronologically and and you know she admits that she loves him and and that she's pining after him or whatever but it, it's the love that can never be you know that 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 there isn't i don't think there's anything explicit in the original show that would prevent a spock chapel relationship previously but there's nothing that implies it either it's just unrequited love but that gives plenty of space for strange new worlds to play around in the margins with and what's remarkable about it and what's remarkable about the way that ethan peck handles spock is they do it with such aplomb there's such a skill in in balancing that kind of thing because of all the chap of all the characters in strange new worlds that appear in in uh, the classic show chapel is the one who's most different like that kind of sassy kind of you know, flick of the hair kind of version of Chapel. That is not what she is oh, like yeah. in the classic show they at made all. Her cool she's as she's hell. very kind of poised <laughs> and soft focused. Yeah, exactly. Which I understand because, like, like honestly, Chapel isn't that much of a character in the original show. She turns up a few times, but she's mostly notable because she's played by Majo Barrett rather than because there's inherently something unbelievably fantastic about the character she's fine at it i'm not really criticizing her performance in the original show but it's not really a standout character as such whereas in this show they've really given her something to do which is great but that just yeah just the way that they balance between spock and and chapel like that's that's so kind of adroit they do it so well Uh, i think a big part of why it works so well is that it's also just not a it's not purely just a romance, you know, like they do such a good job of Mm. building the foundation of like they're friends and she's giving him relationship advice and she knows his fiance. And like, you can tell that there is you know, a nice friendship chemistry between them. And so you're sort of sitting there like, Hmm, because you, you know, we know what happens in the original series. We know that she's going to develop feelings for him. And so you're sitting there watching them just be friends. You're like, when's it gonna happen and then to like just see it start to slowly evolve into the romance there's like the one scene uh where she's talking to her friend i forget exactly what she's saying i think it's like the very end of uh the episode where tipring first shows up she's talking to her friend about like relationships and you can almost see that like the switch has flipped in her brain and that now she's she sees him in a different light. And I was so excited because they just play it so subtly throughout that episode. And you're just waiting for that switch to flip. You're waiting for her to develop that crush <laughs> and to start falling in love with him. And then they give it to you 
so early on in the series too they don't make you yeah. they don't make you wait to see when that dynamic is going to happen you get it at just the right moment we're going to get into how this show rushes things i think quite a bit in this discussion <laughs> only um 10 episodes when it's very clear they should have had at least 20 in this season uh but i think the Chapel Spock one is the only one that doesn't really suffer for it. Of these very, of these various threads that they had set up going into the show that they felt an urge to resolve by the end of the season, that's the one that, and of course it's not fully resolved, but you know what I mean. They want to get to this point, and that's the only one that feels like, oh, they got there very naturally. I think because the actors have such good chemistry, I think every moment, it also gets the more attention than Mabenga's daughter or Hammer's mentorship. It actually gets, I think, a couple episodes of attention as opposed to like one or two. And I think that really helps, like, lay the groundwork. In addition, just insane chemistry from Peck and Bush. Oh, absolutely. I mean, no, I don't, I don't think anybody could really disagree with that. And one of the, one of the great sort of, uh, yeah, flaws of Strange New Worlds really is that 10-episode count because it's so restrictive. And it just, like, I, I get that we're not going to ever get a Star Trek series, which is, like, 26 episodes like next gen ds9 voyager whatever like i get that that's fine those days have gone but just if ever there was a series that was screaming for like even another half dozen episodes like it's this one we need to spend more time with these characters we need to have the opportunity to flesh them out but you're you're quite right kev like the the relationship between uh chapel and spock the just ridiculous chemistry between Bush and Peck. It's just off. It's off the charts. Amazing, and you know, it's impossible not to want to spend more time with them. And I mean, before we transition away, I do want to just talk about Spock and Peck as Spock's relationship with the other characters as well. It just feels so natural and well earned. Like as sort of Pike's number one or close, and not, he's not literally Pike's number one, but often confidant in that same Spock Kirk way. Um, I think it just it, they work really well together, and his re- interaction with the other characters is a little more limited. But I think like like he's such like a kind mentor to Uhura at times, and with all the other presents, I think he just knows how to play off of people in that very Vulcany way. And it's such a difficult thing to do with a, not just doing a letter Nimoy cover, but he able he's, he is able to make it his own while still playing the core values of the character agreed and the the way that he can play the duality of you know spock who is very logical and the spock that we know and love and also this young spock who's really struggling with his emotions like trying to learn how to be a good boyfriend in the the episode that i'm gonna talk (laughs) about later that's just it's so impressive the way they pull it off and that they they know exactly where to draw the line of not leaning too hard into making him too impulsive or making him too emotional like it's just enough that it it feels like the familiar character that we want it to feel like but there's a there's a fresh energy there you know like i i just love this performance honestly <laughs> everything about it i have no complaints i think he did a perfect job he's the perfect person for this role um i like that they uh they tweaked his hair 
a little bit. And then in the finale, when they jump ahead into the future and he's got the slightly straighter bangs, it looks so much worse. Um, one of the things I noticed in that episode, <laughs> I was like, oh, that haircut really does not work on his head. And it just made me so much more impressed that, you know, they found a way to make the Spock look work for him throughout the series so perfectly like it's slightly different from the original and you stop noticing that after a while because it just it does start to feel like he is spock also the one scene where um he doesn't have his ears anymore uh i was startled by how much that actually changes his look (laughs) it was (laughs) that was really um exciting to see spock as a human very briefly (laughs) Yeah, that dream sequence was freaky, but I, yeah, the, it totally transforms Ethan Peck's mm-hmm. face. <laughs> so I think we're ready to move on to our next character discussion. And I guess since I'm talking, I'll go. Um, I think this is a good contrast to Spock as well, where my character is Laan Noonien Singh. And I think as Spock is like the layup, oh, this is the character from the past that's so easy. Uh, Laan's a new character, but there's so many ties to past things in Trek. And all of them, you're just dreading. Like you, lo- like you said, Ellie, you love to see North Spock. Well, I'm like, this is related to Khan. <laughs> this shouldn't work. And then later on, it's like, she like knows the Gorn, those guys in costumes. This shouldn't work. And in both aspects, it works. I mean, I think it helps that the, the last name of it all is barely referenced in the show. I guess when we do like gun to the showrunner's head, you gotta do the con shit or edit. I guess when we get to gun to the showrunner's head, you gotta do con stuff. It will, we'll have to see how that plays out. But for now, I think it's a good example of how the show sort of takes the lemons of this is a prequel show that has to have lots of interesting ties to original series and makes it lemonade of, yeah, this, this character has a lot of agency on her own and is very interesting to me. I I mean, you're going to cite episode JG that's kind of her main episodes. I kind of got to talk around that. <laughs> but she is, I just think she's a very fun presence. I think Christina Chong's a great actor. I'm going to cite her as well in the episode I'm going to talk about as giving a great performance. Um, I think, like, she ha- plays a lot close to the chest. I don't know, here's the other thing where it's like, this is an element that shouldn't work because it hasn't worked in Star Trek past, is uh the whole, like, mental trauma angle which discovery like every character on that show is traumatized and they keep talking about how therapy is important and it's just kind of i agree with the message of course that mental health is important but on discovery they make it sound so dull but her it's like they met kind of like joke about it like oh you went to the therapy and or whatever and then it's like it's such a background element but it still feels reflected in the character actions and decisions that I'm much more, I mean, I'm okay with in Discovery. I don't want to give the impression that I think it's dragging on the, that show, but I think it's a much more lighter and more well-integrated presence here, those sort of heavier themes. So I, I have a question for you, yeah. Kev, um, which is I, I had the same reaction um, to, oh, God, please, not more Khan stuff. Um, and I think, um, I think Lan works very well as a character just, who she is right and and for a lot of i i think one of the great problems that star trek has at the moment in a, in a broader kind of context and this includes well it excludes 
Lower Decks, because Lower Decks is, a, you know, specifically a comedy and it's designed to be self-referential. But it certainly basically includes every other iteration of Star Trek that's going on at the moment from the movies, Picard, Discovery, whatever. It has such a tendency to lean on the past when the whole point of Star Trek is to move forward to the future. Now, I was also very skeptical when uh, this show was originally announced and I, you know, God, no, we're going back to the classic era again you know, which is what a lot of, you know, fans had, had um, you know, their reaction uh, in that kind of way. So my question is, do you actually think, like, the Noonien Singh thing is necessary? Because I think my, the reason I'm asking you this is because I think Lan is a really good character yeah. and I think she functions without it. I'm not sure, at least at this point, at the end of the first season, what difference that makes it's almost none which makes me think well why bother why not just create a new character instead of this sort of endlessly tedious need to be sort of self-referential so do you really think it's like necessary i think it's necessary because either akiva goldsman and or alex kurtzman like looked <laughs> at the uh, showrunner i believe is henry alonzo myers they looked at him as like all right if you're gonna do this show you better have a noonian sing on there i swear to god <laughs> we gotta get the fans excited <laughs> about that because i mean that's that's just the attitude of the executives running star trek right now is like i said referential to the past i think she's a way to sort of see oh look look we're gonna do the things fans like we're gonna get to all the fun the heavy air quotes fun <laughs> um prequel <laughs> stuff that you know they'll want to see but then use that as sort of a trojan horse to smuggle in actually fun original stories so i think the new thing it's definitely necessary the character at this point i think they're sitting on it until like i said someone higher up in paramount plus says ratings are falling push the noonian sing button and then we'll all roll our eyes and have to deal with it but who knows i mean they've done spock well they've done chapel well they've done um as we'll talk about a full-on like remake ish of a classic episode series well i think that they could thread the needle well <laughs> there's a chance there's a small glimmer of hope that when the con stuff rears its head they'll be able to figure it out. Until then, it's kind they, of... They've earned the benefit of the day. Yeah, until then, it's kind of a lingering threat. But you're right, in this first season, at least, no need for that to be there. And I kind of just... That's kind of why I want to have the character, is she is almost a symbol of... You can create great original characters, and their ties to original series don't even have to be existent or notable at all. That's basically how I feel, too. Like, I don't think it was necessary for this character... But it is somewhat impressive that I didn't actively hate it. Like, I didn't actively mind that choice throughout the series. You know, every time it came up, I was just kind of like, oh, okay. We'll see if it does get irritating if they really do pull that lever and launch the con storyline. But I will say I have 100% more faith in this show to do it effectively than I did in, you know, what J.J. Abrams ended up doing with Khan. Uh, in are you movies. are you suggesting that Into Darkness isn't the big triumph of the Star Trek yeah, franchise? Yeah, I know that's a, controversial. that's a hot take, but Into Darkness, bad. I'll, I'll be bold <laughs> and I'll say it. <laughs> I'm, see, I'm going to be bold and say I think it's the most defensible of the three J.J. Mm -hmm. Abrams films, but that's a, that's a separate, that's a separate <laughs> conversation. Uh, 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 sidebar, defensible, not equal to good. All that aside, I, I mean, if they did Cybok in a way that makes me interested to see more Cybok, 
I don't know. Maybe they do deserve a lot of credit, the writers of this show. But we'll we'll see how it plays out. Uh, JG, what's your character? Man, I am not going to let Cybok pass without without comment. I was that was remarkable. I also think Star Trek Five is extremely defensible. Anyway, my character is Hammer. Um, I absolutely adore Hammer. He is uh, my favorite of the new characters in this show. I am unspeakably annoyed and angry about the fact that he is already dead, and it's just I don't know. One of the great things about Star Trek, and I think particularly one of the things that the classic show was great at was this idea that you can really develop second tier characters and that's really i think what hammer is he doesn't really ever get like the hammer episode he gets to be like a second stringer in like three or four episodes and that's what he's really good at he's a really good utility player i think in exactly the same way that say scotty to, to, to pick a, a maybe predictable uh, <laughs> predictable example from my own my own fine Caledonian background, um, but you know like that like he's that kind of character. He can step in and do the kind of things that you need to have that sort of utility character take care of. He's an incredible presence from the moment he first steps on screen. I mean, obviously there's there's his physical appearance. Uh, you know, that's that's incredibly striking next to, you know, the, the, the rest of the crew. But it's just so refreshing to have a character whose place is, I think, so well understood within the, the sort of structures of the show. And one of the great things about him is, is he's, of course, he's that note of sour that you need to make everything else taste all the sweeter. You know, and Star Trek, again, has a long kind of history of, of building those characters as far as the original show goes. Of course, it's McCoy. He's that note of cynicism. He's that note of sourness that just just adds to the um, just adds to the whole sense that everything everything works and that it's not, you know, he he has his own morality. He's, he's you know, surprisingly well-developed view of pacifism, which generally tends to be you know, dismissed in, in sort of sci-fi shows like that as being a position of weakness or a position of, uh, well, passivity. But the fact that he he's actively given a role where he refutes that but still finds pacifism to be a workable philosophy, I absolutely love that. I kind of count myself as a pacifist, so it's incredibly refreshing to see him portrayed that way. And and uh, I think it's the third episode, Ghosts of Iliara, when um, Mabenga's daughter is revealed to be in the transporter, that episode... Um, there's a scene where he goes in to uh, sick bay to try and fix the transporter, and basically Mabenga more or less sort of throws him out of the sick bay. And the way that he reacts to that, the way that Hammer kind of just is sort of forced to accept it, but really like the resentment he has at being being told about engineering systems by a doctor. It's glorious. I absolutely love it. And it's another one of those, uh, yeah, it's just another one of those sour characters that makes everything around it work. I think the performance is amazing. I absolutely love Bruce Horak in the role. He is uh, the first uh, legally blind uh, lead actor in a Star Trek show, which is phenomenal oh, as wow. well. So it's not just a character trait, but he's actually he's actually a blind I painter. I did not actually um, so know it, that you know, he was blind in real life the whole time watching this yeah yeah yeah, wow, which, yeah. Is, which i think is just fantastic it's and again it's exactly the sort of diversity that star trek does and can do so well it they don't make a big deal out of it they don't you know 
we are aware that he's blind. He refers to it. He even gets to make a bit of a joke about it from time to time. Like in his last episode, there's a there's a scene after he gets sprayed with the venom from the Gorn, um, and I think it's I think it's Pike says, "Oh, that was probably meant to blind you," and he gets like the offhanded comment, "Well, they could have picked a better target then," you know, like. It, but it's exactly that. It's it's just that it's loose and it's offhanded and it's not it's not this big. Okay, now we are going to make our point. Like he's blind, the character's blind. That's great. Let's just get on with it, and that's exactly exactly the right way uh to handle a character like that it's i just i love hammer i'm so upset that he's already been written out of the series i would love him to go forward um in in season after season but at least what we get is just just phenomenal i was looking at bruce horak like on the legally blind thing those are his actual eyes and i confirmed that they were gonna give him contact lenses but he found them painful to wear so he just they digitally altered them a little bit, it looks like, but his real-life eyes look very close to Hemmer's eyes. I think that's such a great use of all of that. Yes, just like like you said, the diversity in casting. Yeah, and that's, like, partially that's also why I'm very upset that this character is gone, because I, just in terms of building out the world of Star Trek, I think it's always important to you know, have a diversity of, of aliens that are populating the crew, have people who don't, you know, just look like humans. And, you know, he's such a fun alien character in terms of, like, the, the prosthetics that they have on him and his whole look and the fact that he has all of these different abilities. And it's just so disappointing that they picked the one character who feels really, really unique to kill off and now we're just like oh well everybody else just is a <laughs> kind of looks like a regular human i know they have people who are like technically different species but they're the star trek species where they're like yeah but they look exactly like you and me they just look like people uh, you know so i i do wish that if if they have to get rid of him i hope that they do bring other aliens back into the mix of the main crew because I, I just think that that's so important to the the feeling of star trek like in next generation you've got warp and you've got data in the original series you know we do still have spock like vulcans are you know different enough that it it feels like it adds a different uh flavor to the crew but like that's one of the things i really liked about next generation is that it feels like there's it's it's more of a wide universe you know there there's more out there than just people who just have all the same abilities as regular humans and they, they gotta get somebody to replace him i wish it could have been him but please bring somebody else into the mix who is unique and has some different abilities to add to the crew I, I was just reading that elsewhere that they had the character's death like planned from the beginning and that's just such a bad idea that they that they planned that in the first place and never course corrected because yeah he just feels so unresolved at this moment yeah he's great yeah and the fact that the fact the fact that he got written out in the weakest episode by some distance of the whole series is just kind of adding insult to injury. Um, you know, it, I, I, not every character has to have a noble death. And I, I understand what they're trying to achieve 
with the offhanded nature of the fact like it was just random chance he was the one that got sprayed but it could have been uh it could have been lan it could have been pike it could have been spark you know a couple of red shirts get bumped off in that episode as well and that's that's the whole i mean he does literally wear a red shirt but uh you know he uh he just kind of gets oh man i hate that episode so much i just it just it just angries up the blood thinking about it but but at least at least uh at least he actually got to to make the impact that he needed uh it, it, it's a shame that he went out in such a weak episode but uh you know he i think he's an indelible uh, yeah utility player in, in kind of the great star trek tradition and as soon as he starts making that very heartfelt monologue to her uh in that oh, episode dead yeah. dead 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 dead, like, dead this is it i can see which way the wind is blowing he's getting hit with that poison <laughs> like throughout the episode as soon as they introduced that uh plot mechanism i was like yeah i can i can see how it's gonna end this sucks but i i do like that at least he Got so much time to like build up that nice friendship with Uhura. I thought that was great. I love that, you know, that plays into her character arc of realizing that she belongs in Starfleet. Because I was very iffy on how that was going to go. And like, I I wasn't all in on her plotline in this series up until they started tying it into, uh, you know, his mentorship and him becoming like a father figure to her. So at least they got a couple of very sweet scenes in that episode, even though the rest was very uh, upsetting. <laughs> yeah, I I think this is the chance, since I don't think we'll have another one, to talk about, uh, I really like Celia Rose Gooding as Uhura. And I like, that's another, obviously a very classic character that they're trying to bring forward into this show. I enjoy that. I mean, she's a good actor. I think I like having the perspective on Uhura be she's a cadet who's climbing. We see her go through her training. I just think that's a really fun way to like sort of see that side of Starfleet and introduce this character in a way that I really liked. I I, I agree. I think it's worth mentioning. Um, again, this won't really be exactly news when uh, this podcast uh, gets posted. Um, but it's it's just uh, about a week since Nishan Nicole's uh, passed away. Um, so I just kind of also want to acknowledge that as we're as we're talking about Uhura, you know, obviously there's nothing I can possibly say that hasn't been said a million times before. Iconic character, amazing woman, incredible impact, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We all know that, but I think uh, I think you're right, Kev. I think it is really worth drawing attention to what a good job she does in capturing that character. She's not really doing uh, an impression of uh, Nichelle Nichols, but it's still managing to capture like the essence of the of the character and like Celia Rose Gooding I think is also a very good physical mimic like the times when she's sitting at the communications board and she just like spins around or puts her hand to her ear or whatever it's incredibly kind of redolent of Nichelle Nichols but again it doesn't feel like she's just doing an impression of her she's inhabiting her own character and this is the one that is eventually going to go on and be sort of Nichelle Nichols. And she does uh, a really great job of that. You know, she's she's a very likable character. She radiates kind of warmth. But you also really understand that she's very, very junior. She's just at the beginning of her journey. And that's not always an easy balance to strike. But, but yeah, Celia Rose Gooding does an amazing job of it. Yeah, we were watching um, an episode of Strange New Worlds when that news broke. And it just... Like, obviously, it's very heartbreaking, but I was also thinking, like, it's so wonderful that there's someone to 
carry the character forward and you know like it's such an important character in the history of television and i i do think that this show is doing her justice and you know i i think that's wonderful it's a wonderful silver lining to something that's obviously very sad for star trek fans um but you know at least the character gets to live on in a wonderful wonderful performance and i think uh nichelle would be very proud of this performance yeah i you've both said it better than i could i fully agree with all of that and yeah it's just nice to have her there um so like i said in the beginning we're going to talk about specific episodes next except i want to hijack this podcast the way a certain character hijacked the enterprise and a certain actor hijacked that episode i just want to briefly shout out uh while we're still brief uh at the end of talking about characters uh you if you follow me on twitter right now my avatar is captain angel as for the way jesse james Keitel. great character <laughs> um i really consider making the serene squall my episode to talk about but the, the pike on the prison ship pirate stuff, it, it's fun, it's charming, but it's not, like, I think the most dynamic discussion as opposed to the one I am going to bring up. But I think that character of Aspen actually Angel is, like, the, the shift Kaitel goes through when, this is going to trick, I believe the actors are she, her pronouns, but the character is they, them. So forgive me if I mix the two. The shift Kaitel goes through when she switches from Aspen to angel is amazing and then she just gets to hold court for five minutes and take over the entire show and that character they are just so fun they are amazing to watch and it's just very nice to have a show willing to indulge in like trans representation and indulge uh, give us i mean which is what we deserve <laughs> trans representation but not just like have it be the noble suffering person or the perfect angel or the cute kid we all love. Like, just plenty of examples of that across even just Star Trek, let alone other, you know, with trans characters in them. This is a trans character who's just, like, a piece of awful garbage who's just, like, <laughs> ruining people's lives, and they're amazing. I, I think it's just such fun to get diversity in specific representation. I love that character so much. I just couldn't let this podcast slide without shouting them out. Yeah, really fun character. Um... I love anytime, you know, somebody gets to do a, a really wild twist in their personality and it's revealed that they weren't like shy and meek and helpless. They were actually the one in charge all along and they're really evil. So good. Such a good like scenery chewing performance. Um, everything about it was just a delight to watch. Um, the outfit I thought was a great choice. Like it, it's just such a cool look for a space pirate. Um, yeah, I was I was very excited about this episode. Um, and I think it is true equality, you know, when somebody just gets to be be fun and evil and really lean into that. And, you know, their appearance doesn't just have to feel like some kind of moral stance of like, we, we have you here to make you the upstanding citizen and show everybody that, that trans people are wonderful. And like, it just feels like she is part of the, the cast and she's playing this character who is fun and chaotic and, 
you know, you never feel like lectured to by the writers about like, we have this as our, our quota for diversity. They just throw her in there and let her have a good time. And I think that's great. And that should be the, you know, the future of Star Trek. Get more trans actors in there because in, in the future, uh, you know, hopefully more trans people will be everywhere at every level of society. And I think it's it's strange that in Star Trek, it does sometimes still feel like very, uh, very gendered. And, you know, I, I think that there is a lot of room in Star Trek as this optimistic future to just have more of that kind of diversity in there and show what society could look like and not make a big deal about it. No, I mean, I, needless to say, I agree with, with all of that. I think you've both, uh, both said everything um, that I could, I could possibly say, I think they're a great character, just phenomenal. Um, it's, it's one of those things that I feel slightly um, attuned to because um, I think one of the reasons that they are such a good character is that um, they're a character who's trans, not trans who's a character. And it's really important to get that the right way around. Um, and, and especially as somebody, uh, I'm gay and I grew up in the 80s and 90s and there were just so many terrible, terrible, terrible kind of like, like um, gay representations who you know yeah you know like you were both saying like it, the noble suffering or the you know the the hand on head kind of oh dear you know all that kind of business um and it's just incredibly tedious and and bad writing whereas this is good writing precisely because the character is trans but they're also like this incredibly cool space pirate as well who are really evil or whatever but that like like that that that's that's the main thing and they're also trans so it's it's it, for me, that feels exactly like the way a character uh, like this should be dealt with. It's exactly how you get that kind of representation that isn't just clunky, that isn't just preaching. It is a trap, and I am going to slightly dunk here, but it is a trap that Discovery sometimes falls into. Mm -hmm. um, but it's great to see something like Strange New Worlds um, hopefully maybe learning from, from, from misstep, uh, missteps that, that uh, Discovery has made and finding a way to integrate that kind of representation without it just falling back on, on slightly labored cliches. I think, I think they are a phenomenal character and I think it's a really great achievement for uh, Strange New World. So yeah, absolutely, Kev. You're 100% you're correct in, 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 in mentioning that. It's, it, it's such an important thing and they do it so very well. Absolutely. I think it's time we turned it back over to our usual crew and structure. Um, since as we move to talk about specific episodes, I think JG's the one you want to talk about is first in the airing order. So why don't you kick us off? Yeah, so I'm going to talk about um, Memento Mori, which I just think is phenomenal. It's it's the fourth episode of the the season, and I think going into Strange New Worlds, like I mentioned before, I was a wee bit cynical about it. Because it was that thing of going back um, to do yet another prequel, yet another Toss era kind of thing. We've had Enterprise, we've had the J.J. Abrams movies, uh, and now we're going back one more time for that period. And I can't honestly say prior to the show's launch, I was massively enthused about it. Watching the first episode in, a, in the most open-minded way that I could completely reversed my opinion. I think... Strange New Worlds as a debut episode is pretty much everything you could want from uh, a, a show. It establishes the situation. It gets characters on board. It's a very traditional slice of Star Trek. It's not reinventing the wheel, but it's just good at what it does. 
And the next two episodes kind of follow that pattern as well. Now, when it comes to Memento Mori, it doesn't have a single original bone in its body. That's the first thing to say about it. But the reason I want to talk about it is because I think the thing that it does, it probably does better than any other kind of iteration of that thing with the maybe exception of balance of terror but there's a lot of the, i mean there's just so much star trek dna in this story i mean yeah balance terror absolutely you've got the whole submarine thing under pressure as they go down you know sort of next to the brown dwarf you've got the ship falling apart around them from voyager's year of hell uh, the whole thing with ahura and hammer being trapped in engineering is almost word for word lifted from the TNG episode Disaster, where it's Beverly and uh, uh, Jordy who are trapped in the uh, cargo bay. They even have the same solution, which is just open the doors. Um, you know, like Starship Down from uh, Deep Space Nine. Like, th there's just so much in this, which is, is, is like classic sort of Star Trek situation. And yet, and yet, I... Just I like I know we don't swear in this podcast, but if I could, I would. I just absolutely love this episode. Everything about it is great. Like Pike in charge. Like this is Anson Mount is having so much fun being Captain Kirk in this episode. Like he's just loving every second of it, and it's unbelievably kind of infectious. There's just something about the energy about it. It's incredibly sort of well directed it it's it's you know it's using the gorn and i'm not a hundred percent yet sold on the gorn as being the big bad of uh of, of strange new worlds um you know i mean fine if you have to pick one i suppose it's going back and it's familiar whatever that's fine but uh, i mean ultimately it doesn't really matter whether it's the gorn it could be the borg it could be the klingons it, it doesn't really matter they're the threat they're out there they're hovering you know across the seas as it were off your off your port bow and they're coming for you and it's it just all of that energy just works so well it's it is a great hammer episode he really this is the episode where i think hammer really comes alive he had that great moment in the previous episode that i mentioned in sick bay with mabenga but this is where we get that first kind of iteration of uh hammer and ahura the way that she's able to impress him but he's he's he is sour but he's also smart enough to understand that she's she's got the thing that he actually respects um he gets he gets a couple of funny lines it's just like everything about hammer and this is phenomenal and you know it's just like we even get like a science realistic black hole which is just unthinkable you know that's not what star trek does, but, it, but it looks great like like even i don't generally talk about special effects but they're so good in this episode i love the way that everything looks i love the way the black hole looks i, I love the I love the uh, even the spinny kind of Gorn ships, which are incredibly silly, but silly is not a pejorative thing. I love silly, and they're silly in the best possible way. I I could not love this episode anymore. I, I cannot recommend it um, highly enough. Even like the mind meld stuff, um, it, which is such a pat way of kind of res uh, you know getting to a resolution or, or a shortcut for kind of info dumping even that works well i don't i don't love mind melds as a as a, as a, a plot device but even that kind of figures well in this so just 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 like everything about this episode is just absolutely perfect and now i will stop talking yeah
I mean, I have seen obviously none of the episodes you reference. It's a totally original story. I know it's like my go-to point is like submarine like fiction and movies, and it's so much doing that as well. Yeah, it's just like even if it's stuff we've seen before, like the execution is just phenomenal. Like you said. Uh, I think this is the episode that gives us the most bridge presence, and it really lets you like mm-hmm. highlight, especially early on, wow, they did a great job building this set. And I just love how they're up to the old tricks that have worked for, oh god, 60 years, where it's just like, they get hit, you shake the camera, everyone flings themselves around, sparks <laughs> shoot out of little consoles. Like It's the same stuff, but with a little extra CGI flavoring on some of the screens, I guess. Other than that, it's just so old school. Like there's such an old school attitude to the writing, to the direction, to what's going on. It's just, and it's just the whole, it's emblematic of the whole show proving that the old ways are still good ways. Like it's, it's just so great at capturing that sort of mentality and vibe. I think that's what's, great about this show in general like i think that's what makes this one of the best star treks in so long is that they recognize that everything doesn't have to be the biggest twist or the biggest surprise and that like the old things that are kind of cliche work for a reason on star trek you know like next generation repeats the exact same plot lines in different iterations so many times throughout their run they they repeat the same stories with just like slightly different set dressing on them many, many times. And like they'll throw in a holodeck episode or whatever to give you a new setting. And like this show just leans in so well to being goofy and to using those cliches to their benefit and like recognizing what people want from Star Trek. We don't need this to be you know, the kind of experience where we're all talking about like, wow, can you believe that they killed off that character? Or can you believe what the big twist was? Like, that's not the point of Star Trek. The point of Star Trek is that you are just going along for the ride of the story and you love the characters. And we we don't need you to put a lot of extra sauce on top of that. Star Trek can just be Star Trek on its own without needing to feel like a blockbuster. And this episode is so good at that. It really does just feel like a regular episode of Star Trek that you could watch in any of the Star Trek series. And it would fit in perfectly. And I, I also love that the Gorn over time have become like the big bad and they've become these like super villains of the galaxy because we all know what that Gorn looks like in the original series. We all know that it's like the goofiest guy you've ever seen. It's a lizard wearing like a it's sparkly It's glorious <laughs> and I won't hear a word said against yes, it. Every time they mention the Gorn on, on Strange New Worlds, I'm like, come on, just... Just show us one adult Gorn that looks like the goofy guy in the costume. Don't give us the scary version. Just let us see one funny one, please. It's That's my only critique of this episode, is I really wanted to see a funny Gorn wearing a, a funny, silly outfit. <laughs> my my feeling is there is plenty of time for silly Gorn outfits as, as we move forward. I... Uh, I very much agree with you. I very much hope we get to see one too. Kev, you have no idea what you have to look for. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, uh, I think we can probably I think we can probably leave Memento Mori there. Um, Kev, what episode would you like to talk about? So my episode is the Elysian Kingdom. Uh, I we might have mentioned in our previous podcast, JG and Mine's Talk Doctor Who audio podcast, are both big fans of Legends of Tomorrow, and this is the episode that is the most Legends of Tomorrow-y, which is very welcome because that show was canceled. <laughs> so it's nice to have another show that is going to let its actors have a lot of fun in a little bit of a genre-bending way. And yeah, just really showcase all the talent involved. I think everyone has fun stuff to do. Um, I love Babs Olusan Mokun as Mabenga, as sort of the voice of reason here, and Bruce Horak as Hemmer also is like the one person, the other person unaffected by, oh, I should detail the plot, which is that a nebula uh, gets in contact with uh, Mabenga's like hidden daughter and the nebula makes her dream come true, which is turn the entire enterprise into one of her favorite storybooks. And then every character except the aforementioned Mabenga and Hemmer become characters from this fantasy story and they're just giving the time, having the time of their lives, giving these performances. Some of them act fairly close to their Star Trek characters as the fantasy characters. Ethan Peck is still a very cold Vulcan-y kind of guy. Uh, you have like Jess Bush and uh, Rebecca Romaine and uh, Melissa, Melissa Navia. Like they're all fairly close to their characters, but still having a lot of fun. In that, but then you have like Anson Mount as like this very simpering, whiny uh, court official. You have uh, Celia Rose Gooding as the evil queen is just such a blast. She's having the best of time of her life. I love Christina Chong as like this very whiny, spoiled princess. They're all just like clearly relishing this chance to like really flex themselves and have like a good rapport with each other. And it's, yeah, it's just wonderful. I really like the fun that's allowed to be have, the way you can, like, just switch the genre from sci-fi to something else while still having the science fiction element in the background and sort of motivating it all. Uh, I I mean, I sort of obliquely referenced this early in the episode, but the whole daughter and the transporter storyline is kind of a miss. But the ending, the way it resolves did make me tear up a bit. I it's it's a, it's a very emotional ending I found too. I just really like this episode. I think it's it's emblematic to me, like in tandem with Mentamori, and I think what you're about to mention, Ellie, is your episode. Like, it's really like this is what the show can be capable of. It can be capable of doing the same Star Trek stuff, but in a more like refined and intense way, like Mentamori. But this is like the flip side, where it's like this is like the fun side of Trek. This is like we can really stretch ourselves and have just a goofy one-off like this i i'm gonna i'm gonna slightly dissent in this one i think this is a good episode i think actually um like ellie you were saying this is like a, a, very much the equivalent of a, a holodeck story which i think is true um but i think also in the context of the original series this is like rome planet or gangster planet you know it's got that kind of vibe to it um and i think for like the 35 minutes of the episode that just really commits itself to being a silly runaround, I think is when the episode is, is kind of uh, most successful. Um, and this is also a good Hemmer episode, so this also gives me an excuse to sort of um, sort of uh, praise him a little bit more as well. Um, I think he's I think he's just lovely as the other person who's not affected by this and gets the, gets the chance to offer the sort of 
it's almost like a Greek chorus commentary on what's going on around him and the absolute absurdity of it all, which is I just I find incredibly appealing. Um, I think my own reaction to the whole um, uh, thing with his daughter and that I just don't think it works. I I, I, I think it's a bust. Um, it's a shame. Um, because the, so much work is done prior to this episode to build up how the daughter storyline is going to move forward. And I don't mind the fact that they diverted from it or, or took a different course, but it just isn't one that feels very successful to me. And particularly, I think it's uh, Lift Us Up Where Suffering Can't Reach, where they have that scene where uh, Mabenga has the chance to kind of like, not cure her, but he's like put in the path. He's, he's given sort of enough medical knowledge where whereby, uh, you know, he's, he's going to be able to do something which is going to move him closer to finding a, a cure for his daughter. Um, because Babs, uh, uh, I'll Mocken, I'm doing my best here, um, is such a good actor and he is outstanding. He's just so good. Yeah, he, ju- he almost sells the resolution of this story just in the quality of his acting. But it's just, I don't buy it. And I don't it, I don't buy it, not because it's like he didn't find a cure or she dies, which are the two kind of resolutions which have been set up prior to this. Like a strange alien entity turns up and, and then it's better. I mean, that's very Star Trek, you know, that's that's fine. Um, I'm, I'm not objecting to, to, um, to that. Um, but it just, I think it's too much is squeezed into too little. I think that's the thing what it is. I think that needs to be layered more into the episode rather than just dropped in in the last five minutes. And and um, I, there's something off about the way... Like, I understand what they're going for when, when um, Mabenga turns to his daughter and says, okay, what do you want to do? And gives her the choice. I understand what they're reaching for there. But she's a child and this is a godlike entity and isn't he the parent? Shouldn't he be the one making the responsible decision? I understand emotionally what they're going for, but I couldn't divorce myself from the practicalities of thinking, she's seven and lives in a transporter, and that's a nebula, and I'm not sure she's best placed to be able to making, you know, that she's not, like if she was a teenager even, or, you know, like like 18 or something. Okay, fair enough, because then you would have somebody who's kind of, mature enough to be an adult and make an informed decision but she's like a seven-year-old child she can't make an informed decision and that's that's kind of my problem i feel that undercuts a lot of what it's going for and the cheesy kind of like and here she is as an adult thanks dad we really made the right choice um no i'm not buying that either that was blind luck this could have been an evil entity it could have been trelane or q or the something else we don't know it could have been that nebula that bender got stuck with in futurama it's just you know it i i don't know that I, I it doesn't work but because the quality of the acting is so good because there is so much emotional investment it it kind of almost overcomes that but i don't know the, the ending for this one i've got to be honest it it doesn't land for me Yeah, and I think this episode is the one that really convinced me this should have been a longer season because I would love to see 
more things like this. But I do love that even in a 10 episode season, they made the time to give us a goofy one-off episode that is just so purely for fun. Like, obviously, it does lead to the, the resolution of the plotline with the daughter who's in the transporter, which I also was not a huge fan of. I, in general, um, not a huge fan of when shows, like, use children as just an easy emotional button to press and be like, oh, don't you feel sad now? Don't you feel sympathy for this character now? Because there's a child involved. So I had some issues with it. But, I mean, it in terms of resolution, I think it was a lovely... Uh, choice to tie it into this very fun episode that then turned into a very sweet emotional story um, and this this episode felt more like next generation to me this felt like it could have easily been um, a holodeck episode so I do like that this show doesn't even necessarily feel constrained to just sticking to the vibes of the original series which obviously did have its own fair share of very goofy episodes but you know it does feel like this show can can stretch out and encompass all of those sort of goofy silly fun things that people like throughout all of these different star trek series um, and it's just so fun to see the characters that you know and love by this point having such a good time playing against type or just really leaning into these like wacky characters that they would otherwise never get to do uh my one critique was um which character is it who's playing the princess type i can't remember is it lon justina chong who's usually lon yeah yes my one critique is that um she has the little dog with her has like they should have put that dog in the costume mm. from a from the enemy within i want to see a silly space dog but if that's my only critique that I can think of during this episode, you know, then it's a great episode. It's perfect. Otherwise, <laughs> I I will point out that I just this is just a very fun fact. That dog is Christina Chong's actual dog that she just oh, bought to wow. set. <laughs> fun fact. Do you know the dog's name? Is the dog's name I, involved I have a, anywhere? Oh <laughs> uh, yes, the dog's name is also Runa, but the dog has a full oh. name, Runa Ewok. Great, perfect. Really blending the the franchises here. That's so cute. <laughs> yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's perfectly fair. And um, yeah, but we can probably uh, we can probably leave that one there for now and uh, move on to our third episode of choice. Um, so, Ellie, I think we know what you're going to talk about, but but why don't you tell us? <laughs> yes, I have made the very obvious choice based on everything else I've said so far about my interest in Star Trek. I chose Spock Amok. Um, I was Amok Time is maybe my all-time favorite episode of Star Trek. It's just so silly and funny to me. And it's it's also just a classic episode that sets so many of the like fandom tropes that have grown over the years um so i was just so thrilled to see that even though we're not getting a full pond far episode yet we're getting a little taste of amok time in this season they give us the uh, the dream sequence at the beginning where we get to see spock fighting himself in the famous arena from amok time and we, you know, we get the classic music. It's there. Just hearing the music gave me a little thrill. Yes, as soon as it kicked in, I was like, this is true 
Star Trek. I'm so happy with this. Um, and beyond that, this episode is just so much fun. It gives Spock so many, like, kooky things to do, which is what I want from Star Trek. I don't know if <laughs> if this is the most obvious thing in the world based on everything I've been saying, but my favorite thing about Star Trek not the not the great prestigious episodes. I really like the silly ones that are just all shenanigans, sort of the throwaway episodes. And this episode really leaned into that feeling. Um, you know, they even say at some point, like, this is so close to shenanigans. And I was like, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. Um, so this episode introduces to Pring as a main character. I think this is the episode that introduces her. Does she show up in the series before this point? Right, that's right. I forgot about her in the first episode. Yes, it does set up that they have a uh, tumultuous relationship because of his work. Um, but this is the first episode where she really gets to feel like a full character. And I was so excited to see that she was going to be included in this because in the original series, she's just kind of, um, I, I don't want to spoil a muck time for Kev <laughs> too much because you will get to it eventually. Um, and the twist in that episode is very fun. But as she's originally just introduced as Spock's uh, wife to be when he is going through Ponfar, which is obviously... Uh, the mating process for Vulcans that happens every seven years. Um, they suddenly get uh, very, very horny and <laughs> they need to get back to Vulcan to be with their mate, which is just such a funny concept to me. I think this show may have been the one to invent the trope of do it or die, um, <laughs> which is great. But so T'Pring is originally just kind of a, you know, a plot device. She sort of shows up and uh, she has this twist where she does not want to uh, be with Spock. And so in this show, in Strange New Worlds, you know, they are working on their relationship actively. And it the show does lightly retcon the original series, I guess, in that in Amok Time, it sounds like maybe they have not had a real relationship together it was just kind of a childhood betrothal and then it was anticipated that once they came of age they would be a couple and i did rewatch that episode yesterday and there's a scene where spock is looking at a picture of t'pring and it's her as a, a younger child so it is implied that maybe they haven't seen each other or spoken to each other since then but I love that this show decided to retcon that and give them a real relationship that has real relationship problems. And they're using that as a way to show Spock's internal struggle with these different sides of himself, you know, between his job and being human and being Vulcan. I think they work it in so effectively as the different layers of this character. And of course, it also sets up the drama uh that I love most, which is Spock and Chapels, will they, won't they? I think getting to bring in there and making her interact with Chapel and letting them know each other, uh, you know, that's something I didn't expect. And I I really like that this did feel like um like a teen drama at times. You know, I, I think that's a fun dynamic to get to see. 
And the body switching is just great. That feels like such classic Trek. It does feel like the shenanigans that I was waiting for. It's such a fun way to do a character exploration of Spock having to pretend to be his fiance, who he's having these troubles with. Um, so yeah, just a, a great Spock episode that I think really, really captures everything that I like about this character. I full agree on all of that. I I mean I think the word hijinks is the one that's specifically used, and that's that's what I came to this hijinks, for. Yes, <laughs> that's what I came to the show before. That's what Star Trek hasn't promised to me that uh, Discovery mm-hmm. hasn't really lived up to. I guess the Abrams <laughs> movies and Lower Decks kind of indulge in that, but this was some real hijinks, and it's just mm-hmm. body swapping already one of my favorite tropes in fiction. I think. Like I think of the Farscape or the Gravity Falls episodes as like the high watermarks of that, where it's just a lot of fun mm-hmm. and having, especially you do it in live action, having actors pretend to be other actors is so fun. But then just also just mm-hmm. like having characters have to, it reveals what characters think about the other character. And mm-hmm. I still would love to see the full body swap episode, i.e. everyone on the Enterprise getting body swapped. But Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> a more almost like lower key version of that trope, having Spock and Dupring learning about each other through doing that. It's like, it's such a goofy, like stock episode plot, the body swap, but it always works so well. It reveals so much with the characters. It lets the actors have really a lot of fun. I'm so glad they pulled it out in the first season of this. Mm-hmm. Also very fun in any show when there's a body swap to see the other characters reacting mm-hmm. to it. Uh, Pike getting to react to the body swap in this one was just so funny. Like as soon as a body swap happens, you're immediately in anticipation of like, Ooh, are they going to be able to fool them? And you know that like funny hijinks are about to happen. Just a, a great plot device. I think every show should have a body swap episode. It's great. <laughs> And it's just so nice to see Star Trek embracing the comedic side of it. You know, one of the things that um, has always been such a pleasure of Star Trek is that it's happy to just have episodes which are silly, which are fun, which are entertaining, and which just give people the chance to do things that they're really... Like, Ethan Peck is a really good comic actor. Mm-hmm. really good mm-hmm. and this episode gives him the chance to kind of prove his comic chops but that's not a role which is necessarily you know an obvious one for somebody playing spock to be able to embrace you know and even in the even in the original show you know spock doesn't get a lot of comic you know a lot of comic moments he'll get a wry line he'll get a raised eyebrow but this episode really lets uh, like ethan peck cut loose and really prove his comic chops and just that ability to uh, be able to play around with genres and, and, and yeah, the whole Freaky Friday thing. It's, you know, this is a full on kind of genre collision and it really wants to go for that kind of aspect. And it's something which feels, you know, like as a disturbingly long term fan, such as I am, uh, it feels like something which has been kind of in absentia from Star Trek on television for a very long time. I don't really count Lower Decks in this because Lower Decks is consciously a comedy show. And so that's kind of necessarily different. But like Discovery doesn't really do straightforward comedy episodes. Picard hasn't given us a straightforward comedy episode. And it wasn't really sort of going back to sort of 
pre-21st century, it wasn't really something that Enterprise did much of as well. There's one or two episodes of Enterprise that kind of uh, brush up against it, but you kind of have to go back to Voyager to get like a full, proper, straightforward comedy episode. And it's lovely to see Star Trek being prepared to embrace that side of things again. So yeah, it's, 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 well, it's delightful. Yeah, and the comedy here, it does work so well. I love that they are also willing to just, like, have a lot of character moments is here. I love that uh, Spock and Dupree cannot keep it secret at all, which for from, like, Pike or Chapel, because they have to be those sort of point people here. Uh, they, they're able to keep a secret from, like, the guest stars whose opinions don't matter, who need to be convinced that it's them. But, like, they have, like, no face around their friends. <laughs> I Spock doesn't, and I also lo- I love the moment where it's like, can't you tell we've body swapped to Pike? And he's like, oh, yeah. I was just like, there's a lot of just natural comedy that comes out of it. It, yeah. I'm so impressed with what this show is able to do. And I love how much this show works in, like, expanding the lore of Vulcan culture and how it feels very natural and you know, like, I, I love when there's a, a problem with Spock that, like, doctors don't understand because it's specific to Vulcans. And, like, I, I love the embarrassment that Spock has whenever one of these problems comes up, just like in a muck time where he's humiliated to have to have people know that he's going through pawn far to the point where, like, he would rather just get close to death than <laughs> then tell McCoy what's wrong with him. And in this, it's, it's just so much fun to see how embarrassed they both are by having to confess that they did this like ritual that has led to this problem. And I love like the little offhand comments from Tipring about like, Mm, your your quarters don't feel very Vulcan, and <laughs> because Spock to us feels so different. She's so snippy. She's so snippy, and I I also love that about the character because those of us who have seen a muck time, we know what's going to happen. We know that maybe this isn't going to be um a great <laughs> relationship uh, for these two. So it's so fun just seeing them try to work through these problems and just knowing what she's going to do to him eventually in the big twist of that episode. Um, but you do, like, the actress who is playing her in this series, you do kind of, uh, you know, like this character despite knowing what's going to happen between them. Because she just she does bring a certain like empathy to the character, even when she is kind of nagging him or you know being a little bit mean to him, and you know we're we're taking Spock's side because we understand why work is so important to him, and we understand this emotional struggle that he's going through with the human and Vulcan sides. But she does do a good job of actually making me sympathize with her more than i expected to by the end of the episode and i think that the body swap plot was a great way to do that because it does let you kind of uh get into the minds of both characters in a 
a way that's very sweet and touching, but also funny enough that it doesn't feel like it's it's trying to manipulate my emotions and pull on my heartstrings too much over a character who we know is going to end up being maybe a little bit um, unlikable. And the last thing I'll say about uh, these two in comparison to a muck time is when I was re-watching it yesterday, uh, again, I'll try not to give away the the twist here for Kev, who hasn't seen it yet, but um, there's there's a part where Tipring is explaining why she has done what she what she does in a muck time uh, in the big twist. And she sort of lays out this very logical plan that she had uh, that she's thought through from every different angle. And I like that Strange New Worlds made that such a thing for this character, where every time that they're doing a little scheme or a little gambit together, um, or they sort of have to like trick each other uh, in the in the Space Pirates episode, you know, you can see that Spock and Zipring are both able to see how the other one's mind works in a way and understand the logic of how they're approaching these different situations. But Tipring especially is so good at like working out these schemes and sort of making situations work to her benefit or understanding how people are going to react to certain things. And that felt like so core to the character in uh, Strange New Worlds where, you know, she always seems to be like manipulating the situation a little bit because she knows how it's going to go. I, I really liked how they developed that character. Um, and I'm, I'm also really excited to see how it goes downhill for them <laughs> in future seasons because it's, it's going to eventually. Um, so I like that they have sort of made us invested in Spock's love life by setting up this love triangle that we kind of know the outcome of. Uh, we, we definitely know the outcome for him and Tipring. We don't a hundred percent know the outcome for him and Chapel. Like, I think there is some wiggle room, uh, for them. So very excited to see how the love triangle dynamic plays out over future seasons. I think that's as thorough of an explanation as Spock Amuck as we can get. So yeah, let's, uh, let's go to our, let's end on our season finale, an appropriate place to end, A Quality of Mercy. I'll just give the thumbnail summary of it. Uh, basically, this is Pike is sent to the future. Oh, first Pike meets one of the cadets he's going to become disabled to save. And to prevent that cadet's death, or does it, he saved the cadet? Or I think that cadet died as well, but he saved other cadets. Now I'm a little murky here. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. He, he's, he saved most of the cadets, but two of them die. And this is one of the ones that Got died. it. Okay, yes. So it's not just to save himself, but also to save the cadet. Uh, he wants to give a message to cadet. Pike from the future shows up with a time crystal or stone or whichever they call it. And um, yeah, he they gives me a vision of seven years in the future. I understand they are riffing off a balance of terror at a TOS episode we have not gotten to yet. And with Pike in Command Enterprise instead of Kirk, but Kirk does show up. And they fight off Romulans but accidentally start a war because of Pike's actions being in that situation which is why he has to let history play out the way it's supposed to um I th I mean there's lots of problems that I think are the same problems we've discussed before in as much as 
this all feels very rushed way to conclude the Pike wants to change the future arc. I think, uh, yeah, I think there's also just like, like we said before, Ellie, why doesn't he just retire? There's other ways to prevent this future. It's, it's a little shaky ground and the horse of the time crystal stuff is just nonsense. I, the whole framing device is such like a hand wavy thing. Just a, let's just get us to here, the place we want to go. And the, support structure leading us to where the writers want to take us is very flimsy but i think once we're in this sort of remake of the episode gone wrong i think it's such a fun story obviously not knowing the original story myself just like the dynamics at play it's another very ship-bound combat episode like memento mori and that's very fun uh I think the dynamic between Pike and Kirk will get into Kirk's performance a little bit. I know it's a bit contentious between people here, but um, I I think the dynamics and adding Kirk as a character is at least a very fun role for this episode and sort of highlighting how he's different from Pike. And I, I and the Romulan stuff just works so well. Uh, so that's my overall thoughts. What about you all? I mean, I think the broad shape of the episode is, is very good. I do think that the, the sort of recontextualizing of Balance of Terror, uh, for the most part, or if you will, on balance, uh, is, is pretty much a good thing. And it's, it's mostly good. I don't love um, older Pike turning up with a plot device to try and explain away the episode. I think everything about the Time Stones is, is bad. And it, if you wanted to feel ungenerous about it, um, I, I think it's telling that the one bit of discovery which has been imported into Strange New Worlds is the bit that's not really working because all that Time Stone stuff was, was from uh, Discovery. But putting that to one side, I do think that the core of the story here is good. I think kind of reframing history in that kind of way is an interesting thing to do. The, the plot device to get us there is, is clunky, and, and like, I really hope we've seen the back of the whole time stone things. It's just lazy. Even even out with sort of Star Trek, uh, sorry, even out with uh, Strange New Worlds itself, it's just basically like the, the, the prophets from uh, Deep Space Nine, um, you know, it's just uh, nothing about it really works, but it gets us to a point where we get to explore, you know, what alternative history is. And it's really interesting idea to do like an alt history thing within a show like Star Trek. Obviously, you've got something like uh, For All Mankind, which is really big when we're recording this. And, and I, I love alternative history. I, I find it absolutely fascinating. So it's, it's a really great thing for Star Trek to explore its own kind of alternative history. I don't love the portrayal of Kirk here, as, as Kev has very much alluded to. Uh, I, I, I think that Paul Wesley is not a good Captain Kirk. Uh, and the problem isn't that he's not William Shatner. The problem is that he's not even Chris Pine. And he just doesn't work for me. Like, we get such a build-up to him from, uh, from Samuel Kirk. Um, you know, we're told we're going to get this kind of roguish character. He's a whole deck of wild cards, we're told. And then we get this guy that turns up that barely even seems to fill his uniform, never mind fill the central chair. And like, I get that they want to take Kirk in a slightly different direction and that they just don't want to have like a, a, a parody or an impression or an interpretation of, of, of William Shatner. But I actually kind of think that's why... 
Chris Pine's Kirk worked well in the movies because I think he manages to capture the swagger and the essence that Shatner brings to the 1960s version but isn't just doing an impression. I think the problem that the Paul Wesley version of the character has is that he, he certainly doesn't have the charisma or the swagger. Um, and in trying to sort of play it slightly smaller, it's kind of recontextualizing the character in a way that you can't really do with legacy characters. I mean, that's kind of the problem with using legacy characters. And having Ethan Peck on hand is, is such a good example of how you can do that with Spock. Just kind of throws his version of Kirk sort of into sharp relief. I don't love it. And it's, I think that character would work if it was anybody else except for Kirk. The problem is Anson Mount is a better Captain Kirk than Captain Kirk is. And that that fundamentally underlines what the episode is trying to achieve, which is this very interesting debate about the fact that Kirk is essentially much more kind of gung-ho. He's prepared to kill in order to prove a point, and Pike isn't. Both characters are right, and that's fascinating, but it's also fascinating to see which one leads us to you know, a, a peaceful future, which is the violence, and which one leads us to a future, which is war, which is, 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 is the pacifist or the more uh, you know, conciliatory approach. That's a genuinely compelling moral, in, uh, moral dilemma to, uh, to examine. But it fails at least... I, I, like the, I don't want to say the episode failed. The episode is phenomenal. I, I adore it. But Kirk doesn't work in this episode. So that's kind of where I am with this. Uh, yeah, so I think that, you know, this character does have room to grow. I think that maybe it could become a performance that I will enjoy more over time, which is why I'm hesitant to just say, like, nah, it's not a good interpretation. I do think it's an okay interpretation. It's it's not the best. Uh, like, Chris Pine is just so charismatic as Kirk that, you know, you're willing to buy into a totally different interpretation of the character whereas this version kind of low on the charisma and maybe doesn't necessarily sell that wild card persona that we've heard more about i i think it's kind of okay that he's not full wild card yet just because we're going to have more seasons and he's obviously a younger version of Kirk and so it it could be fun to see him start to become more of that type of character who we're familiar with but yeah in hindsight I just when I think about the great things about this show or the times I was really excited for a character who I knew and loved to show up Kirk doesn't necessarily come to mind when I was watching the episode I don't know there was nothing terrible about it but in hindsight there was also nothing really like great about it there was nothing that i really latched onto to be like yeah i want to i really want to see more of that interpretation he was just kind of there he wasn't the worst thing about the show but they could have done a lot more with it and hopefully the future seasons will give him more room to grow into the character and make him more interesting i think room to grow is key here um because mm -hmm. ethan peck I know you don't know this, Ellie, but he was Spock in season two of Discovery as like a mm -hmm. sort of minor. Yeah, I know yeah. he I know he did show up on there. Right. And I remember just seeing like a couple clips of him, but I've I've never actually sat down to watch Discovery. Right. I guess my <laughs> point more was like you don't know that he had he, I think it took like that season to get his sea legs out from under him. 
as mm. Spock. I mean, he was good in Discovery. I'd say maybe a little better than Wesley as a Kirk at this point. But he definitely is much better in Strange New Worlds, Peck is. So I think I think we just should give Wes the same grace. I think it's a tough role. He's following two really strong acts that interpret the character very differently. Um, like, he's sort of in between, as mentioned, Shatner and Pine. He's like, has some of the Shatnerian pauses in his speech, but he very much has like that sort of, he's trying to bring the Pine swagger to it. And I think what will make him stand out is when he try to, stops trying to square the middle and just be his own Kirk. And you just need more than one episode to do that. It's just a tough task. So I think we're just going to have to see him grow. I, I think, though, he has a core value to him that, like, he he has presence. That's what I'm going to say. Like like Anson Mount, I think this is a character with presence. Not the same kind of presence, not as much presence. But given that he's just starting out, I think you need at least the core presence. And I think he at least has that. So while he's very much a Kirk cover band in this episode... Like very distinct from Spock doing like or Peck doing new things with Spock. I yeah, I am excited to see him grow. I think given the difficulty, he did a good job. And if nothing else, at least he has an incredibly strong episode around him. I mean, I think that's the other thing about uh Equality right. of Mercy is that it is just a strong episode of Star Trek. Is is it the best Star Trek episode ever? No, it's probably not. But it does a really good job of, of what it wants to do. If it's a line in the sand for certain plot points, particularly when it comes to the time stones, particularly when it comes to uh, Pine sort of brooding over his fate, that's fine. I think those probably aren't the most compelling aspects of the first season of Strange New Worlds. And zooming out just sort of a little bit away from Equality of Mercy, um, I think Anson Mount has done such a good job of inhabiting Pike as a character. I don't think he really needs those kind of props to fall back on. That kind of angst or that kind of sort of predetermined character art isn't something that he requires. The character itself is strong enough and the show is strong enough that a lot of those sort of bits of scaffolding probably aren't really that required going forward. I don't necessarily think it's a mistake to have them in the first series. And it, of course, it's important to remember, it's the first season that this show has done. There are going to be missteps. There are going to be things that they try which work and things that they try which they don't. Uh, but as a sort of general uh, general sort of observation, this has been a phenomenally successful season of television. And Anson Mount and Pike has been such a core part of that. So if we are looking at this episode as a way of uh, putting certain aspects to bed so that when we move over to season two and going forward from that, we don't have to worry about those so much. You know, that's fine. Same with Mabenga's daughter. You know, we've had that plot, plot point. We've kind of resolved it. We can move on to it. We can do more interesting things with the character. So, you know, in that sense, you know, I think it's it's unquestionably a success. Yeah. Um, it sounds like wrapping things up, but there's one thing I really want to shout out, which is the actors playing the Romulan uh, captain and his second-in-command mm. oh, yes. are really good in this episode. <laughs> I, I mean, unbeknownst to the listeners, I have some internet trouble in a gap that was, I'm going to assume, edited out. But that means I can't go on IMDb and look up who the name of that actor is again, who played the Romulan captain. He's like, I looked him up when I was watching the episode, and he's like not a name. He's not he's like a he's a uh, career guest star is the best way to put it. 
And he's just shown up in a lot of things in like one or two episode roles. And he must have a stage career or something. Because, I mean, as Ellie pointed out when we were watching it, he's playing it like Macbeth. He's yeah. going to incredible lengths the whole time. Oh, yeah. He's having the time of his life with this character. And it's just so fun to watch. Like, I... There was nothing funny about the plot, but I found myself just laughing with delight at how he was playing this character so dramatic and so serious. And it did feel like very Shakespearean to me. I'm very sorry that that character won't be able to uh, to come back. I would have loved to have seen him as a recurring Romulan. <laughs> Yeah, he's a he's he's a great character, and it's a lovely performance. And you know, it it chimes very well with with Balance of Terror as well. Um, I guess it's not much of a spoiler to say that it's Mark Leonard that plays this character in uh in the original in Balance of Terror. Uh, now, uh, Mark Leonard is you know unimpeachably brilliant, and there's no question about that. And um, you know, this is another one of those performances which needs to kind of inhabit the same space without simply being an impression but it is an absolutely uh it's a terrific performance there is something about that kind of world weariness and that line he has about um you don't remember a time when there wasn't war to this kind of impetuous upstart of a you know a sub commander um you know that's such a that's such a lovely way of of emphasizing history without just leaning on it too hard and again it could come across as a little bit kind of you know world war ii drama or whatever but it's sold um uh, the romulan commander is played by uh matthew mcfadson that's the that's the actor's name and i i completely agree with what you said kev he's like phenomenal in this but he's just like he's a hey it's that guy actor um which is great he's you know an amazing you know an amazing presence in this episode and there's so much tiny little detail to the Romulans in this. It, it just all works so well. And and also, when the Praetor turns up and she just blows everything apart, it's such a wonderful moment. It's, it, it's dramatic and it's powerful and it's, you know, it's a big twist and everything. It just, it's all so successful. All that, all the stuff with the Romulans is just great. Yeah, I really like that they got to uh, be featured in this season. Obviously, they are classic Star Trek villains, so I was thrilled that uh, they made it in here and that it wasn't just the Gorn the whole time. As much as I like the Gorn, um, you know, we never get to see the full-blown Gorn, and they gave us what we wanted with a classic Star Trek villain species by throwing the Romulans into the finale they were a great choice. Um, you know, you get to see that classic scheming, the little plot twist of Kirk uh, pulling a pulling a gambit on them. Um, I love the little moment where they first see the Romulans and they realize that they're very similar to Vulcans and everybody turns to look at Spock. I was like, ah, some <laughs> some classic like Star Trek light racism against Vulcans, I guess, to just turn around and be like, hmm, suspicious, just because they happen to have <laughs> similar ears and eyebrows, which, like, there are so many species in Star Trek that all look the same as humans, and nobody's <laughs> being weird about that. <laughs> but no, I really liked this episode, and I'm, I'm excited to see if the Romulans become recurring uh, villains in this series as well. Yeah, I... 
that one thing that did bump me in this episode a lot is how Ortegas is like very anti-Romulan, mm-hmm. like viciously so. It's like chill <laughs> out. I guess it's a almost a flaw of like we didn't get enough time with Ortegas this season. I like Navia as an actor. She's she was very fun. She's a very fun presence in a lot of episodes. We have no idea what that character is like besides I guess she hates Romulans. Yeah, that's one of her main things, the same way that, like, Lon's main thing is just, like, man, she really wants to kill a Gorn. Which, like, we know her backstory, so it's it's understandable. I can see why, but so often her plot just becomes, like, I want to kill these things. This is, this is my life's mission. Uh, so, yeah, I would like to see some different sides of both of those characters that aren't just, you know hating on a specific species <laughs> yeah no i think that's i think that's probably true and i think i mean again sort of sort of taking the slightly uh sort of bigger picture of the season i think um you know the way that it's in- able to integrate sort of star trek history without it just feeling like uh clunky references or fan baiting or you know any of that kind of stuff i think it is really one of the the great triumphs of, of Strange New Worlds, and especially taking an episode like Balance of Terror, which is such a touchstone, not just within Star Trek. I mean, there are bits of it which are certainly um, broadened out into uh, sort of wider popular culture, particularly that whole, you know, in another world we could have been friends and all that kind of stuff. You know, it, it's, it's not an easy task to be able to balance that against both the drama of the episode you're writing and the kind of history of the show. I mean, you know, we're coming up in 60 years of Star Trek now as of recording, and it's a genuine achievement to be able to produce a show which is, you know, of the consistent quality that, that Strange New Worlds has managed. Not every episode has been perfect all those who wonder was bloody awful but you know it's kind of like that's basically like nine out of ten which were good or better than good and sometimes unbelievably amazing that's a phenomenal strike rate for a series like this and so so much better than here's another prequel kind of implies so i just really kind of want to give so much credit to everybody involved in it because this could have been such a crash and burn and instead it's easily the star trek i'm most excited about at the moment yeah and especially when so many other franchises (coughs) uh, star wars are figuring (laughs) out like where they stand with these fandoms now and how to expand these stories or you know do prequels in a way that's exciting and appeals to what people liked about those franchises in the first place like so many franchises right now are in their struggle era and just can't seem to crack what people want from it and i think it's so so impressive that star trek finally figured out that like 60 years later the things people liked about original Star Trek are things that still work today. You don't need to constantly change the formula or try to make it feel like some other franchise. Try to throw in things that are more exciting or big or plot twisty. Like, just go with the things that we all loved about it. It's it's timeless. It's classic. It still works. There's no need to reinvent it constantly when you have the perfect blueprint for Star Trek already throughout these other series. Um, So yeah, it's great to see that after all of these years of 
going through their own struggle era, um, Star Trek finally seems to have like found its footing again. And this this show really did like reignite my love for Star Trek, which I think is one of the the nicest things you can say about a franchise that's expanding is like it did make me want to go back and rewatch my favorite episodes from the original series. It even made me want to go back and rewatch episodes of the next generation that I really loved, even though those characters have like nothing to do with, (laughs) with this show. Um, Because it just, it's the feeling of Star Trek is there in the DNA of all of these episodes and that's something that I don't get when I watch the new, like, Star Wars TV shows, for example. It, they don't make me feel like I have to go back and re-watch the movies right now. I have to go back and, like, relive my favorite memories from it. If anything, those shows are making me like things less <laughs> in Star Wars sometimes. But yeah, this show perfectly captured everything I wanted it to be and it reminded me of why I became a Star Trek fan in the first place and uh, you know it's everything I could ask for and I hope that it continues to do that and it doesn't like as it gets bigger and more popular I hope it doesn't shift away from that and feel pressure to become bigger and better and you know more plot twisty and shocking I, I want it to still feel like this season because it's it's working so well and I just really pray that they don't change it to try to like pull those big levers on big plots from uh the original series like Khan. Don't do it too soon, you know? Just keep keep giving us these little stories and the character development and giving us those funny moments because I think that's what Star Trek really is at its core. And when we do get to those big twists or those big moments, it's the little things building up to those that make those moments matter, which I think is what a lot of other franchises don't realize right now. They want to get to the big moments too fast without putting in the work to make you love the characters and stories before those moments. All right. I, I'm going to commit to doing this. There is, I'm going to compare the phenomenal change in the world to an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> where the, the the brief of that SpongeBob episode is um he gets he appears in the background of a commercial for the Krusty Krab, the fry cook shop where he works, <laughs> and then everyone think and he thinks, Oh, now I'm famous and people are coming to the restaurant to see me. He has a bunch of gimmicks, like he starts singing lounge songs to the customers, he starts like putting on a show for them, and they'll get annoyed because he's not just making the food that makes the restaurant good. The episode ends with him accidentally throwing hamburger patties onto the grill and everyone gets excited. The clip I post to Twitter all the time about Strange New Worlds are the customers going, that's what we've been waiting for. That's what we wanted all along. And then he (laughs) becomes a hero for just doing his job the way people wanted him to do it again. All this to say, they're making Star Trek the way we want them to make it again. I guess I'm one to talk since I'm just now familiarizing myself with the pre-21st century side of Trek. But this is what everyone says Star Trek is about, and I can see what the appeal is, full stop. This It's like, and even just beyond Star Trek, which is not my expertise slides, but just in television in general, as all TV becomes these, like, serialized arcs that are, like, dark and dramatic and just don't know how to loosen up outside of your rare legends of tomorrow, this one has so much classical elements of great TV. It has episodes of the week that deal in standard sci-fi tropes. And it has stuff like a recurring will-they-won't-they story and uh, other, like, 
character backstories that can take a beat for a few episodes and then come back to the forefront. It's just all these very solid, well-worn, familiar elements of a TV show, especially a genre TV show, that a lot of television has kind of forgotten how to do as it becomes more like flashy film writers, like not being allowed to make mid-budget movies anymore and things of that nature, or like trying to ape movies so like it seemed more impressive. This is just like television for television's sake. It's wonderful. And I hope the show continues and I hope it gets more episodes per season. Well, I mean, I think that's pretty much about as perfect a summary as uh, as we could hope for. As, as of recording, um, season two has been approved. It's been approved for a measly 10 episodes, which we do not approve of because we would very much Ew. like there to be more. Um, but I'm also more than happy that it's been renewed and that we're going to be getting more seasons and so we can wrap things up there for now no recommendations this week i think we've probably been talking for long enough um so we'll just go straight to plugs um ellie what would you like to plug um i don't know if i have anything huge to plug other than uh, my twitter if anybody is interested in following me it is ellie wrote that um, and it's a lot of just garbage meme posting combined with the occasional post about my actual work. Um, and I also recently appeared on an episode of Total Massacre, another podcast, um, with Kev, and we were on talking about the film Heat. So if anybody would like to hear us talk about Heat, um, I share a lot of opinions in that about how I think it's... Um, like sleepless in Seattle for '90s dads, if that if that is a vibe that appeals to you, and I think that's about it. Fantastic, thank you very much. Um, yeah, Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? Sure, uh, you can email us talkingtrektoyou at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at talktrektoyou. I'm on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R, and frequently guest on the aforementioned Total Massacre. JG's writing can be found at www.jgmcquarry.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. And his other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, where he and Andrew D can go by the, go through the Beatles discography song by song. Please like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast and the podcatcher used to help other people find us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And we can wrap it there for Strange New Worlds. Next week, we are going to be diving into The Naked Time. And of course, that's going to have a whole host of implications. But of course, as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. Beep.